Welcome to If These Balls Could Talk, where each of us brings forth five topics to discuss, and the other has no idea what those topics are. My name is Mark Pesci, and with me, as always, is the guy that hits your eye like a big pizza pie, John Campania. What's going That's on, John? That's amore, brother. That's amore. <laughs> I love that one. How are you doing, Mark? A little callback to the Italian, right? Hey, that's some out of you. Things are good. It's getting starting to get cold around us, though, huh? Dude, it's so cold today. Is it cold in Rhode Island? It, it is cold in Rhode Island. It's and it's going to get even worse uh, this weekend. Unfortunately, could just leave. You just walk out of your state, right? Well, I am actually leaving, but I'm going further north. Not oh, a very. Not that's a, very a terrible idea. decision. Terrible decision. Where are you going? Uh, rented a cabin up in Maine. Ooh, should be fun. I think Pete knows about a movie about that. Mm, maybe. Oh, a, a knock at the cabin, perhaps. <laughs> The latest M. Night Shyamalan film that we uh, did quite a bit of work on. Cool. That's awesome. And as you just heard with us also is our producer slash assistant to the executive creative director, Pete Steffen. What's going on, Pete? Hey, not too much. Just kind of hanging out. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So with us today is our special guest, our friend Katie Fox. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Oh, so excited to be here. We're glad to have you. Let's say we get to know our friend Katie. <laughs> nope. Not answering any questions tonight. You I'm have just going to sit here. Uh, <laughs> it's it's in right. the documents. Thanks a lot, everybody. Such a, it's a great uh, podcast. All right. See you later. All right. Woo, I guess so. Podcast over. <laughs> so, Katie, you grew up in Canada and ended up going to McGill University in Montreal for what us Americans call college. Tell us about your time in Canada's Harvard. And also, what are the differences from your experience growing up in Canada versus that of your own kids growing up in America? This is a great question. I'm, I feel like I'm going to spend all this time being like, huh, let me think about these. Um, I, I mean, McGill is absolutely wonderful. It's one of those schools that looks like it fell right out of a movie. It's also incredibly pretentious, as, as you just said, <laughs> in the fact that it actually refers to itself and sells like t-shirts and sweatshirts that say... Canada's Harvard, which is wow. got to be like I one that up wow. when I wrote that one question and I most, loved it. One of the most pretentious, ridiculous things you could possibly say. So it was, it was kind of a huge culture shock for me because I, I had actually done two years of community college in Portland, Oregon in the States before transferring right. back into, uh, into McGill. I, I, I grew up in Montreal, so it wasn't, wasn't a weird experience coming back home to Montreal, but definitely a weird experience kind of bouncing between U.S. college and Canadian college slash university. Um, But also like very East Coast and very West Coast too, right? Yeah, super East Coast, West Coast. You know, uh, in the the community college, West Coast feel. Not that Montreal's on a coast, but yeah, okay, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it's a a state of mind, Mark. You you wouldn't understand. It's a state of mind, yeah. I mean, it's an island, so there's there's water. So at least you're, 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 you know, you're there. It could be East Coasty. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, really different. The on the kind of West Coast US vibe was very like the educational standard was very much like everyone needs to learn a little bit about a lot of things, you know. So you're really well rounded, and you're this you know incredible, interesting person at cocktail parties. Whereas McGill's like, no, you're here for English literature, so you're going to read lots and lots of books, and we don't care about whatever you learned at that weird community college. So I had to retake a whole bunch of classes because they just didn't count a whole bunch of credits that I brought in. Really? Yeah. And I, and I was a double major in English literature and ancient history. So I just spent an intense two years of reading just so, so you were essentially reading. Indiana Jones? <laughs> I was Indiana Jones. Yeah, that was the goal, really. You know, Excellent. <laughs> I really like that a lot. 
That looks good on you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I got I feel like I got there. You know, I really got into into the Indiana Jones space. Um, my kids. <laughs> that's a good question. I my kids are still pretty little. They're eight and eleven, and we go back to Canada pretty often. And I think we I think we do a pretty good job of really raising them to feel very much like they have two countries. You know, we we are very aware. <laughs> we've We've been very verbal with them. We're like, it's probably cheaper for you to go to university in Canada. So, you know, let's just prep for that as a situation. So yeah, they, it, yeah, I feel like they, they are growing up probably in some ways similar to me in that they, they're much more kind of global residents rather, rather than just seeing themselves as solely American. Have you been teaching them French? I, I have been trying since they were born to teach them French. Neither kid could care less about learning French. Really? And now they, they learn, they're learning Spanish in school, which they are super excited about. <laughs> and I don't speak at all. Like I, I, the time that I tried to pick up Spanish completely destroyed my French. So it's now, <laughs> now like a jumble of like weird, not You're like, I don't even like, know oh, the words no. I'm saying anymore. No. Yeah. No. Okay. Spanish and French combining. are way too similar. It's like French. It's all, it, they're all the same words and most, most of them are even spelled really similarly, but in French, you don't pronounce hardly any of the letters and in Spanish, you pronounce all of them. So it's really confusing to try to know both. It mad props to anyone that can speak both French and Spanish. I'm, I'm endlessly impressed, but yeah, no, the kids, the kids have tons and tons of books and like we've tried movies and all kinds of ways to get them into French and they, they don't care to learn. <laughs> they want to learn Spanish, which is probably more practical for where we are anyway. But Jamie's so left-brained and like really <laughs> defiantly left-brained now that yeah. she's getting bigger that she hates languages like yeah. badly. Yeah. Which I'm, I was with, the same, I'm with her. <laughs> I was yeah. the same exact yeah. way. She, I just, I was so good at all of school, but languages and it pushed into computer programming. I'm so bad at computer programming because I just try to overpower it. I try to just memorize everything. And obviously that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Hey, you and I are on the same page. I thought that I was really smart. And I, again, I grew up in Montreal. I grew up fairly bilingual because that you have to be when you live there. And when I was in Portland and taking classes there, it, one of the requirements of their like, you must learn everything style of education. They were like, you need to do a language class. And I was like, I got this. I'll take, <laughs> I'll take Canadian French, which I've been doing Hell my whole yeah. life. Yeah, no, I lasted in that class for maybe like a couple of weeks until I pieced out and ended up taking Latin. Latin was easier for me than taking Canadian French in, in no the kidding. US. And you speak was, Canadian French. And I do, I, but it was, Amazing. it was overwhelming for like to be partnered oh, up. The pressure, I hate languages so bad. <laughs> the pressure of it was way too much. It was yeah, embarrassing, so. but yeah, I got through. I got through, I survived. Cool. So moving on um, over the years, uh, we've talked about our love of movies together. And so while at McGill, you worked at a blockbuster video. So sure I'm did. curious, do you miss the video store? And do you think it's something that I'll ever make a return to mainstream culture? Oh my gosh. I miss the video store. My best friend, Nat and I have just started a, a podcast so that we can talk about, <laughs> to talk about our love of movies and our love of, of the video store. Yeah. I hope it'll make a comeback. I don't know if it if it will, but I think that there was something so just nice about the experience of going into this community, this shared space where you could, you know, ask for recommendations and, and, you know, explore and pick things up in this tactile, tangible way to be able to figure out what it was that you wanted to watch. And, and kind of similar to shopping malls really, which are also kind of on, on the edge of being a thing anymore. It was a really cool hangout space for, you know, for teenagers and, and, you know, college and university kids. Do you like it in like a similar way that you like the library? 
I, that's a good question. Mm. I feel like it was more foundational for me than the library. Like I, I spent a lot of time now working with and, and in the library um, as an adult, but I feel, and I spent a ton of time at the library as a kid, but I feel like those like foundational teenage years were spent like at the mall and at the movie store. And that was like the thing, right? It was like, before I got a driver's license, before I had like any kind of freedom, we could walk to the movie store. We could spend all of our money renting movies and have these like epic movie days where it, you just felt like you were in control of everything. And it felt very like fun I mean, to dive into around, these different Roaming spaces. around the video store for everyone from their 30s to their 50s, that's a foundational memory. It's yeah. something that you remember Absolutely. and that you really liked. Yeah. Like you got to pick a, a video when you were 10 for your, you know, when you went out with your parents and it was amazing. Oh gosh, yeah. And I, and I think too, like working in the video store, I mean, all of those experiences were so, I mean, you know, the movie Clerks just like brilliant, <laughs> brilliantly <laughs> describes it, right? Like those were the actual experiences. Like there were crazy stories of, you know, people trying to steal things. And like, and at one point there were people that threw firecrackers into the return shoot and things were on fire. Like, and there was, you know, there were all these crazy personalities and people that you like normally would never have spent time with. And you were pulled together in this kind of, you know, retail environment that was uh, centered around movies and blockbuster was such a, a weird and wonderful space for all of that. So it was a lot of fun. Did you catch the blockbuster show on Netflix that has already been canceled? Unfortunately, <laughs> I wanted it to be better. I really did. I wanted I, like, it to be better. I wanted too. it to it be was... better. I wanted it to like be my experience and watching it. I was like, this isn't what it was like to work in a blockbuster. I was so uh, like, I was, I was angry at the show and it wasn't the show's fault. I just wanted it to be <laughs> my own kind of lived experience. I think Randall Park quite... needed to be funnier. I think they yeah. just focused way too much on JB Smoove. I mean, yeah. I just, his character was fine, but like so one dimensional. Yeah. Did you in Netflix defense, however, the um, the documentary they did on the last blockbuster was really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I like Mark I, wouldn't know this because he doesn't have Netflix like a <laughs> Mark, you know, if you need any help with the Netflix account, we're here to we're here to help you. I I remember I vividly remember I was a, a store manager at Blockbuster and kind of like the last year or so of working there and. And I remember it wasn't Netflix. It was Red, uh, Redbox or Redbox equivalent. But I remember like Blockbuster being like, Redbox, no one's going to come up and like put their credit card into like a robot box to rent movies. <laughs> like they were, they just thought that was insane and completely preposterous. And, you know, they, they were sitting in this position of just like, no one can come at us. Like we are <laughs> foundational. We're blockbuster. <laughs> We're blockbuster. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Didn't they have a streaming service ready to go at they the did. end? They did. I did. I they actually did. That was past that. me. Yeah. That was past my time there, but yeah, they, they did. They tried. They, I think once they realized like, I think there was probably a point past when I worked there where they were like, oh, shoot, this is going to be a thing where Guys, they tried to scramble. Fucked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Corporate office was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? But yeah, I think that there was a time where they, they tried, but it was just too little too late. Like there was I mean, they the amount of like physical retail space and just the like, ah, yeah, all of it. I. But I, well, yeah, I don't, so I have big, such fun right? Memories. And so expensive. And, so expensive. You, know, <laughs> you like, yeah. you know, you made 5,000% on the Mike and Ike's. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of they would buy these new movies and then people would pay them, you know, four or five dollars or whatever the, the cost was to rent them. I mean, they, a lot of those new movies, they were 
renting them, you know, thousands and thousands of times in all these different locations, they were making a killing for a very long time and then selling off the, you know, the used rental copies later for a reduced rate. Like it was a pretty profitable business model for quite a while, but yeah, I don't, I, I miss those days. I miss the, like the community and the fun of working in a retail job. Like it's shitty. There's so much of it that's shitty, but it, but it was so fun. Like there was a competing rental store across the street. So like we would, we would go at like, you know, after working these crazy shifts, we'd go at like two in the morning, you know, to cheers, literally a cheers bar down the street. <laughs> and we would like play movie trivia and, you know, and hang out and decompress after these crazy shifts. And people, customers would constantly return, you know, movies from their store to our store. They'd come in, they'd be like, oh, I returned hmm. that. And, you know, we're like, well, did you return it here? They're like, oh no, I returned that one to you know, to the blockbuster, like in Vancouver. And I'm like on the other side of the country, like there's no, <laughs> like, this is not Netflix. There's no like gnomes that are going to carry those movies back to us. Like, this it, isn't Redbox. Exactly. <laughs> did you like, guys yeah, have it's, a, it's um, crazy. Did, did you guys have like any kind of rivalry between the two stores, like some fun <laughs> pranks on each other? Oh yeah. Tons of, pr- tons of pranks. Not really okay. like so much a, a rivalry. Well, it was like a friendly like, rivalry. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Lots of, lots of fun pranks that store ended up close closing a lot, a lot sooner than, than the blockbuster ended up, you know, closing that location. Did you guys have, Katie, this is a serious question. Did you guys have the, <laughs> the movie encyclopedia employee who knew oh, every yeah. movie that had ever been printed yes. and made recommendations that were completely off base? Listen, you have to see this art documentary from France in the 1970s. Um, so I, so my, were you that person? No, I was definitely not that person. I, um, I was definitely not that person. I'm like a people pleaser. I'm totally non-confrontational. I like the thought of giving someone a bad recommendation is just too stressful for me to even try to recommend stuff to other people. But I worked for this absolutely incredible uh, person named Chris, who I'm still friends with. And we, and we chat with about movie (laughs) movies often online, but he could just lie straight to customers' faces and tell them the most insane possible stories and build these huge recommendations for movies that were preposterous and like clearly not a fit for people. Like just absolutely incredible. And Blockbuster, as many of you in this age group know, had late fees for a very long time. And he, and it was always a point of contention. Customers would come in and freak out about late fees and, you know, not want to pay. And they would yell at, they would yell at the employees. And at one point, this guy who clearly had a ton of late fees came up and I was working at the cash and I was like, this guy's, he's going to go off at me and and yell at me. And he came up and he was so friendly. Like I've never seen anyone just like, you know, are you all right? Like, how's everything going? Having a really good week. And I was like, yeah, things are fine. And, and he like paid the late fees, didn't, didn't even question it and then left. Hmm. And I went up to Chris after and I was like, Hey, that guy was like really, really nice. Like, what did you say to him? And he was like, Oh, I told him that your parents were in a horrible car crash yesterday. Oh no. I was like, you did what? And he was just like, yeah, no. He's like, I didn't want to put up with this crap. Yeah. I just didn't want him to be upset with you. Like, yep. So yeah. That is an amazing, that is an amazing story. I like that a lot. (laughs) So, Katie, as we decided to start this very podcast, you were a wonderful soundboard for our thoughts and ideas. Thanks for that, by the way. Of course. <laughs> you you currently work for a professional webcasting software company and are currently in two of your very own podcasts. I am. In, in your opinion, why do people love podcasts and why do you love to host them yourself? Oh, my gosh. I got into podcasts really late, actually, like I compared to most like consuming them um, and 
and hosting them much later than most people. I think people like them because they feel very personal, right? Like I, you're in most cases putting someone in your ear and taking them with you while you're driving, cleaning, walking the dog, doing, doing all these things. And it, it feels like that person or people are talking directly to you. And if you spend time with them week after week, as you know, as your listeners will know, listening to you, it, you, you feel like you get to know them better, right? They tell personal stories and they're, and you get to know them after a certain amount of time. And I think there's not really a lot of other mediums out there that are that personal. It's a very kind of nice place to be able to share information. Um, so yeah, I so, really I mean, like that answer a lot, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's really good. I yeah. have been saying to, to Mark and Pete and, um, you know, me, anybody who'll listen, I, I, <laughs> everyone, everyone, <laughs> right. Exactly. Even if I they don't th- want to listen. Exactly. <laughs> because that's what I'm here for. Um, yeah. I think that listening to people who enjoy talking to each other is just kind of pleasant. It's really pleasant. And right. Yeah. I don't know. You really do feel like you're friends with people. I, so I've been listening obsessively to a podcast called obituary, which makes me sound crazy. I'm just going to embrace it. I'm a little bit crazy. I love this. I love this podcast. They've been now out for a year or so. Not, not, they haven't been around for a crazy long amount of time, but they now have um, fans of the show who are sending them gifts like based on things that they talk about in the show. So like, you know, stories that they tell, you know, they were joking a few days ago that they like needed a gavel. They like to like judge people for one of the stories that they were telling. People were sending them gavels in the mail. <laughs> like people feel like they, because they are, you know, laughing along and learning along that they are, but yeah, it feels like, it feels like a friend. And I, I think it's a really nice feeling as a listener. And I think it's just really fun to get to be in this space as a host. And I'm sure you guys feel this way as well, but it feels kind of special. It's fun to like play around with the tech and to, and to have something that you can be proud of and to show off it. I think many of us like thought we would be fun if we were, you know, on TV or on the radio or played with that idea. So I, there's a little bit in that where it's sort of fun to see what's possible and to see, you know, if there are people out there that, want to listen to what you have to say and want, you know, want to engage with you and get to know you a bit better. It gives me an excuse to talk to my friends every week. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's For true. John, it's entirely just about talking <laughs> with other people, which I love. That's all I, that's all I need. <laughs> I love what's, it. What's amazing too, is that like to do this before you needed to be working at a radio station, which oh, gosh, has yeah. a very strict programming schedule, yep. you know, very specific thousands of dollars in equipment. Yep. Yep. Very specific talent and a very rigid like program. So like, this is so much more creative, I feel like. And yet it sounds or can sound, you know, as good as like any yep. broadcast radio studio. Like it, it blows my mind. In my day job, we make a, a live streaming and video production software. And one of the my favorite testimonial videos is from now someone who works with us. But at the time he was he was one of our customers. And he had said that he, you know, had worked his entire career in, tel- in broadcast television. And he was like, what you can do now for a couple of hundred dollars used to cost us millions, oh, yeah. <laughs> millions of dollars. Oh yeah. And like, and was so, like you said, just so incredibly restrictive. And now you get to hear a ton of different voices and there's all these, there's a space for absolutely everyone and absolutely every topic. And no matter how big the podcasting space gets, there's still room for everyone, which is just really nice and encouraging. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to have millions of listeners. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to make millions of dollars at it. 
but everyone will have a, a space and an audience and a place to be able to play around and be creative and, and test and have fun. Love Absolutely. It. All right. Well, thanks for that, Katie. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> Let's say we get started. Are you ready, everyone? Yeah. So this past weekend's NFL games were surrounded in lots of officiating controversy. The wire that controls the sky camera seemingly contacted a punt in the NFC Championship game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Philadelphia Eagles and wasn't reviewed because they didn't have the appropriate camera angle that could confirm whether or not it happened. There are also numerous inconsistent calls that didn't pass the proverbial eye test in the AFC Championship game between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Kansas City Chiefs. The NFL tends to put referees together for these games that perform well individually, but are usually part of a completely different crew during the regular season. So, everyone, do we feel the NFL needs to take a look at how games are officiated in the playoffs with regards to the people and the technology? See, I think when it comes down to it, everybody thinks they are a professional football player. I mean, the people who really watch football a lot are watching, you know, six hours a day, probably 12 hours a week, reading about it, studying it. So we had really just talked about the fact that some human officiating is good. I think the fact that some refs call things differently, some umpires in baseball call things differently, that's part of the sport. Now, there are some differences. So there were some calls in that AFC championship game that really looked very lopsided. And while I, we were just talking about it before the podcast started, me and Mark, while I think that um, aside pushing Patrick Mahomes was a roughing the passer, I think that was a legitimate claw. The, um, the intentional grounding to Joe Mixon, that was bad. The punt that is at the end of the game to Sky Moore that he returned for 29 yards. I mean, there was such an illegal block in the foreground of the shot that it was it was insane that they missed that call. And I mean, mm -hmm. sure, they might not be looking at it, right? We can just say that. And as far as like the intentional grounding, when the, the ref was questioned, he said, yeah, and he just gave the definition of intentional grounding. But at the end of the day, there is a fact that the NFL does like Patrick Mahomes and they like popular teams making it to the Super Bowl. And so was it rigged? Maybe. Yeah, it, it definitely, with the naked eye, it, it kind of looks that way. It, it, there definitely seemed to have been a lot more calls that went the Chiefs way than the Bengals way. What happened in the NFC Championship game kind of really irritated me. And this is kind of going back to what my normal nine to five is. Like, like this is a brand new technology with the sky camera. Get some incredible angles of the field. Oh, yeah. And it's right above the field. You didn't think that perhaps the football might come in contact with it at <laughs> one certain point. So, and there's nothing that's looking at it. I mean, well, I, I mean, why isn't there a rule like there is in every major league baseball stadium with a roof that people hit? Why isn't there a rule of what happens when it hits the, with the, the camera? Yeah, you would that's think that true. they would have thought that through. You, you, would, you would have thought <laughs> yeah. someone would have thought of that. It should just be immediately ruled a dead player or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But with regards to the, so I, I asked about the people too. I do not like how you essentially have like an all-star uh, uh, officiating crew. I, I mean, you should work with the people you've been working with all year. I think that has a lot to do with the bad officiating in the playoffs because you are dealing with people that you've, in a lot of sense, you've never worked with before. So you know everyone else's tendencies and 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 what they do and what. I can mean, imagine in your job, if you all of a sudden just started working with six random people that you've never worked for in your entire life. I mean, you really think that's going to go well? No, I don't. Yeah, I didn't realize they changed, actually changed up the crews to like different members. That's, yeah. that's just a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. Yeah. Zach Taylor, right? A professional NFL head coach 
on camera, right? He didn't say it in a mic, but on camera, he told his staff that the game was rigged. He said, this is rigged. You know, you can read his lips. It's wow. crazy. But he was definitely screaming at the refs there, uh, especially over the intentional grounding. But I mean, there was like a that pass interference on Mike Hilton. So many weird plays that just like didn't look like penalties. Joseph Osei was so, so upset. <laughs> So upset. And I mean, I think his call was a little more legitimate, but he was so upset leaving the game. He yeah. was screaming like this giant defensive lineman having a tantrum leaving a game. I was like, that's that's a lot. I know. I felt so bad for that guy. Yeah. Next topic. At the end of 2022, the World Tourism Organization reported that tourism recovery accelerated to reach 65% of pre-pandemic levels. So an estimated, guys, 700 million tourists traveled internationally between January and September. So this is more than double the number recorded in the same period in 2021. And so you guys all, without a doubt, have exponentially more international travel than me. And my question is, is the world finally ready to move on and start to explore after COVID-19? Are you guys... And what's the coolest trip that everyone's been on? So we were all, you know, stuck at home for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a, essentially the whole entire nation, well, I guess the whole world really whole had world. cabin fever. That first opportunity that you get to go outside, yeah, sure enough, we did it. I was, I was definitely part of that. I mean, I did a trip, uh, as we've said on uh, another episode, went to London and Iceland, a phenomenal trip. I can't stop talking about that trip. Like, I love that <laughs> trip. I can't wait to go to both. Again, uh, I don't know if we're going to probably do both at the same time like we did last time, but it was a phenomenal time and I definitely can't wait to to do it again. Mark, we got to coordinate next time we go to Iceland because we want to go back too. Yes, so we cool. went in the we went in the middle of summer right after the summer mm. solstice. So it was light out the entire time. So cool. It was <laughs> we very were, annoying. We were the reverse. We <laughs> went in the dead of winter and it was dark <laughs> out the entire time. But I do want to go through, uh, during the northern lights, you know, yeah. like a lot yep. of other people. So that's we went right on the equinox. Yeah. We went at like supposedly really good time for the northern lights and yet the we were only there for I think 2 days or 3 days and it was overcast the entire time so that was the Aww. one thing we didn't get to do but next time um, but yeah no it was i yeah i've really enjoyed it. it was a fun trip what other what other places have we gone to gosh i i was on a travel circuit last year i did a ton for work so i finally got to go to london which has been on my list for forever mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. where and then a whole bunch of american cities all around i think the last like fun like international trip that wasn't work related we took the family to we did Sweden, Denmark, and Iceland was our oh, wow. like Chris, Christmas trip in 2018. I, I remember that trip. And that was awesome. And my my goal is really, has always been to do like one big trip every single year. Not necessarily always international, but like one kind of big, like, you know, fun family trip every year and, until the kids are sick of going with us or until we, you know. And, uh, well, until, until we they're sick of it and they don't want to get forced anymore. Exactly. And they don't want to be forced right. anymore. So, I, yeah, right. I'm... I'm hoping that we're hopefully moving out of, of pandemic and are able to travel a little bit more easily. It certainly, it was bumpy for a little bit there. The first couple of trips, yeah. I'm trying to think if it was oh, yeah. like 2021 or if it was late 2020, but the first couple of trips where it was still like really kind of, you felt sort of nervous and there was, you know, everyone was still like heavily masked everywhere. It was, and you know, and a lot of like really intense social There's so distancing. much fighting on airplanes too. 
Yeah. I was oh thankful God. not to be on airplanes when it was like really intense, but even those last few before they removed, you know, a lot of the different levels of restriction. Well, and a lot of still, rules to even like get yeah. back into the country, yeah, get that back must, into the States that you leave. That exactly. was, I think scary. the most scary for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I know many, a couple of friends who canceled big trips because they were like, well, I don't want to get caught in the Bahamas. Right. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, Missed that, thankfully. <laughs> that would have been an intense right. I think my craziest international trip, even though it was many moons ago, is that we, uh, the family and I, we went to, um, my not my family, this is with my parents now. Um, we went to Italy um, when I was nine. And um, we went from Rome all the way up to Switzerland. Um, I drank too much in Rome, but at nine, apparently it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah, the nine-year-old. It's legal in Italy. Yeah. It's legal in Italy. And so we went to the Fountains of Tivoli, which is a fountain garden outside of Rome. And there was a big dinner. I still have pictures of it with my aunt, my uncle, and my parents, and my cousins. And it was awesome. The most Italian thing I've ever done, right? (laughs) And um, I just, a whole bunch of red wine. So yeah, that was the first time that I maybe drank a little too much. (laughs) And um, there was some experiences at the pools in Italy where I learned that not everyone wears their shirt when they're swimming when you're in Europe. So that was something. True. Italy's been high on my list. That that one's been- It's on my list. I definitely want to go back. Mark, we um, we should get like a little like farmhouse outside of Naples and eat pasta every day because that would just make me happy in my soul. That's so these, amazing. These are the dreams. Yeah. Yeah. This this year is our um, 40th birthdays and 15th wedding anniversary. So we, we are trying Hell to yeah. figure out like wow. a big awesome Ooh. trip. But the problem is that because we had two years of no trips, it's so hard to pick one. We're like, okay, well, we really mm-hmm. should only do one but we want to do all of the different kind. Like it's like we want to do like a relaxing beach vacation trip, but then we also want to do like an adventure trip, and then also like a historical like walking tour trip. So yeah, it's. It, I have way too many possible too many, trips planned too many this possible year, that, trips. and I know that I can't afford them. Like I'm positive of it, so I'm just yeah. like, huh? How is that going to work? I yeah. have to do them all. You always got to try. Our friend Colin, who is uh, who's on the podcast last week, last week um, yeah. he is having a destination wedding sometime in the fall. And we're going to probably go to Vegas. So that is definitely on the list, too. Uh, I almost made plans to go to Australia this summer for the Women's World Cup. And so that, that would have be been cool. that would have been very exciting. Uh, but it was yeah. uh, unfortunately, it just didn't quite fit the schedule. But uh, I do want to go to Australia. That's definitely on the list. And yep. I'm uh, a little bit more in a tennis. So uh, it might be during the Australian Open, which will be also watch Joker nice. win again. Watch, watch Joker win again. <laughs> it, it would be nice because it's going to be cold here and it'll be, it'll be yeah. warm down there. Yeah, so. yeah, it's summer there now, yeah. Um, Kate, so I, I totally get what you guys are, are feeling. Like, we got to go <laughs> to all these places. Yeah. Steph and I have had a, a bad track record of fitting two vacations into one oh yeah yeah i'm notorious for that too much yep so it's like i actually just i i swore i would never do it again and then we have the kids uh break is coming up in the last second last week of february and i was like oh we'll just we're just gonna go do a local trip we're just gonna drive to we'll just Hmm. go to montreal we we've been to montreal multiple times and then we were talking more about it we're like well we've never really taken the kids to quebec city though we're like well okay we'll go to quebec city and to montreal (laughs) they were like well but Ottawa is awesome at this time of year because you can skate on the Rideau Canal. So we're like, okay, we're going to go to Quebec and then Montreal and Ottawa. And then Dane was like, well, we haven't done skiing this year. We're like, okay, and on the way home, we'll go skiing. 
<laughs> so the whole yeah. trip is just going to be like chaos at this awesome. point. But all of those places like three hours. But apart. Sorry, yeah, they're all about two or three hours apart. And I'm like, <laughs> and I know this. I've driven these multiple times, and mm-hmm. I it'll be fine. We'll work it out, but it will be way too intense, and we'll come That's back home being like, why this doesn't feel like a vacation? Well, you'll just have cranky children. Yeah. You'll be like, wow, this is yeah. really hard. Yeah. 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 How, how old were the kids at the time? Oh no, this is upcoming. But this is, the kids, oh. <laughs> this is upcoming. Yeah. No, this is this is knowing it based on the past experiences and still doing it anyway. <laughs> hey, it's 2023. Kids travel great. You just yeah. there's internet on the tablets. Yep. You just hand it to them and they just yep. leave you alone. It's yep. true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it can be tough doing. So we did like Iceland and Croatia together, <laughs> which was a very big mistake. Um, I mean, it was awesome. It was worth yeah. it. But then. Uh, I think Greece was just Greece. Oh yeah. Greece is an awesome trip. That was one of my Um, favorites. And now post pandemic, we actually did get out and went to Alaska to visit our good friend, Amy, who moved there. And uh, so she put us up at her house for a couple days. And then we went from there to Portland, Oregon. Oh, I love Oregon. Yeah. By the way, Amy, if you're listening, we we see you listening because of (laughs) Google analytics. (laughs) (laughs) We're watching you. We're watching you. We're watching you listen. (laughs) (laughs) And we have one Alaskan listener. (laughs) One Alaskan listener. Who who could it be? Who could it be? It's not Amy. It's like some totally random. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she showed you. She's not listening. It's not her at all. It's some guy. You never know. Amazing. Never know. It's it's Governor it's Governor Palin. That's what it is. (laughs) I want to. Did you see those? awesome like posh igloos that have like the skies open i know that's been like a dream oh, i want to go they're so yeah. bad me too they have those in multiple locations when we were when we were heading out to sweden they if if we had gone further north we, we drove through most of the country but had we gone further north they had like an ice like ice hotel and then those yeah those like igloos with the but we were there with the whole family and it was like, it was like this romantic experience. Plus yeah. you have kids with you. So probably not. Or, or at the very least they're all in the Mommy, one right next to you guys. Mommy, why is that tub shaped like a champagne glass? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, all right. You'll learn when you're older. In a world where there's a next topic. So the Boston Bruins are in the midst of a record setting season currently. Through 50 games, they have 38 victories and 81 points which puts them on pace for 62 wins and 133 points at the end of the year, which would both be records. They seem to have the whole package with a league-best 92.9% save percentage and a plus-78 goal differential, led by David Pasternak with 38 goals and 71 points. So, everyone, what are our thoughts on the Bruins, and could they actually take the Stanley Cup this season? Hey, Pete, why don't you start this one? (laughs) I don't know. I think it. Kate's the the Boston fan. I think I'm, she should go I, first. I am. I am. Oh, not I knew this was going to fall flat on her face. So, oh, she is. Okay. I am. Oh. I am a fair weather Bruins fan. I am willing to admit it. While I mm. am a, a born and bred, <laughs> well, not a born, but a, uh, I a grew bread. up in the Boston. <laughs> counts, Mark. I grew counts. up in the Boston area. I love my Boston sports, but of all. Of the, of the four major Boston sports teams, the Bruins are definitely on the bottom. So I am only a fair weather fan when it comes They're to the always, Bruins. They're always, it is kind of brutal. So I will, I, here are a couple of feelings I have. So I, I grew up in Montreal, so I aggressively cheer for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, Canadians. And I will cheer for them <laughs> unless they are playing the Bruins, in which case I will cheer for the Bruins if I am here in Boston and Montreal. Well, I'm I mean, in if Dane's there, if yeah. Dane's not you there, you have the you can wrong hear- Fox on this for this. <laughs> you <event>. can cheer <laughs> for whoever you like if Dane's not there. It's That's true. Okay. It is true. I agree with, I agree with you though, Mark, that I, I think it's a weird, it's been a weird experience 
as a hockey fan living in Boston because the Bruins do, no matter how good they are and how incredible a season they have and how much potential they have, if they're always like, every time we go into the bar, like they could be playing like, a, you know, an amazing game or like a really important game. And, and the bar will have on like, baseball that has two teams that are not Boston (laughs) and you're like, Hey, can we watch the Bruins? And they're like, Oh yeah. Okay. I guess so. Like they, (laughs) they always get the like short end of the stick, which is such a weird feeling for me because it, you know, in Canada it's like hockey, some other sports, (laughs) maybe. What else do you play in Canada? I mean, we curling. yeah, curling, curling. not a lot of cricket or at least not where (laughs) I, Not, a lot of yeah, not a lot of cricket. Curling, Maybe. curling, yeah, super, super mm. exciting. We have three Skiing. curling clubs in upstate New York, by the way. Ugh, cur- Isn't that crazy? I, I have played so once. popular right that now. Is crazy. I think once in my life. Our friend Rick does curling now. Ugh, yeah, it's yeah, it's a fun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's that's a good question. I mean, I, CFL football, which is different than your football. I mean, Montreal had a baseball team for a while. We used to go to tons and tons uh, of the baseball Expos. games. Yeah, and then, and then they were like, you know what? We're good. We're just going to double down on hockey and get rid of this. They just didn't want to pay to update the, the stadium. To add kind of a sports opinion to your question, Mark. I mean, I think it's hard not to be awesome when you have Pasternak having this crazy career, scoring yep. twice as many as the rest of his, yeah. his, his teammates. And, and Marshawn doing almost as good. Like, if Pasternak wasn't having this amazing season, Marshawn would be having an amazing season, right? And so that, with the goaltending, I think they're going to be really hard to beat. Both yeah. goaltenders are in the top 10 for goals against, which is amazing. That never happens. Yeah. So I just discovered that Boston's goalie is Linus Allmark. He was a great goalie for the Sabres. Unfortunately, it's stuck in a very, very depressing time of the Sabres when they were trying to come out of their... <laughs> tanking to get Jack Eichel and then just couldn't win. They just had bad coach after bad coach and just could never put it together. And Olmark's talents were kind of wasted there. How is anyone going to beat Edmonton with the top two point scorers in the whole league? Well, Edmonton can't really defend. They score a lot of points. (laughs) They score a lot of points. But, you know, defense wins championships, right? We'll see. That is true. I heard that on a really cool podcast that I listened to. Yeah. (laughs) So Edmonton really has just been coming on strong lately. They, uh, I believe, are the seventh or the eighth seed in the West right now because they weren't they weren't performing very well, even though they did have the two greatest offensive players in the league. Uh, they've, well, they've Pasternak only- has just to put it in perspective for the listeners. Pasternak has seventy one points this season, and Connor McDavid has ninety two. Yes, Connor well, McDavid, McDavid is McDavid having is a nuts. Wayne Gretzky type year right now. A Wayne Gretzky type year. The Do next you know highest point scorer, also on Edmonton. Leon Draciti, maybe Dries that's Idol. how you say it. Dries Idol. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. <laughs> I, know. I don't watch hockey, Pete. Dude, uh, the, d- it was a good try. It was, good it was try. so good much try. fun, though. Like, the but it current- has 76 points, the second highest goal score, point scorer in the whole league. That's yep. going to be frustrating for both of them. They just can't can't seem to defend. I mean, yeah. You know who's um, on that list, too, is uh, Tage Thompson for the Sabres, who came out of nowhere, but he's just like this giant, like, yeti sized dude that just like he's never going to be good at hockey and all of a sudden it's like oh he's amazing in hockey <laughs> but wow, the bruins have a 79 point differential this season yeah they are they wow. are really i i mean that that's that's the big difference between like so like sabers are still the number one scoring team in the nhl but their defense and goaltending has killed them all season and you know same thing with the oilers i think that's what makes boston so powerful to go back to them yeah. is right they they it's they're firing on every phase of their game. Yeah. 
we've gotten spoiled. I definitely, I feel like the couple of times that they have lost this season, it's been like, but why? Why have they lost? You're like, okay, well, they're not going to win every single game, but they've got you feeling like they will. So I don't know. It's always, I, I feel like it's always fun to watch a team that's performing so incredibly well. And it's always fun to watch an underdog team come from nowhere and take it. So it, I'm equally happy when that happens in the playoff stages. They just came off their first winless streak of the season. <gasps> and that was they lost one and they tied one, yep. which is kind of amazing no, no. to go this far without, you know, without a win. That's nuts. We're more than we're like halfway through the season. Oilers have two more points than the uh, Sabres or the Bruins, by the way. What? Oh, in the standings? You mean goals? Yeah. Goals, yeah. Okay. Oh, two more goals, yeah. Two more goals. 187, yeah, 285. And yes, points are a thing in hockey. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you meant standings points, oh, scored stop points. It. <laughs> That's me trying to explain baseball. I'm like, there's, there yes. are balls and they're, they hey, hit, keep, people I'm hit them. I'm keeping up, you guys. <laughs> I'm doing my best. There you go, there you go. Amazing. So there were three big off-season transactions the Bruins did, uh, and this is, uh, according to the HockeyWriters.com, the three best. One of them was running, uh, re-signing Patrice Bergeron to a one-year, believe it or not, only $2.5 million contract. What? Could you imagine one of your best players being only $2.5 million? That's, that's amazing. Nobody watches shit. hockey, Mark. <laughs> that's and no one watches reason. it in Boston. That's so, low even. So that's, that's good for Boston. For... He was on the verge of retiring last year, and the GM Don Sweeney, also a former Bruin, talked him back into playing one more year. They also brought back David Krejci because he was did not play last year. He was, I guess, in his home country of Czechia. And then they traded for Pavel Zaka from uh, the Devils, and he's been uh, quite the invigorator on the second line. I just want to do my part for New York sports. The Rangers are in third in the Eastern Conference, and I'm really happy about that. Yeah, they're doing well. (laughs) They're not in third in the Eastern Conference. They are. I literally just looked it up. I don't know about hockey. I looked at uh, maybe they're third in the division. Oh, yeah. Division, probably. The Metropolitan Division. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. In the Eastern Conference. By the way, I I didn't know there was more than one. There are. I think you at this point you might know more about tennis than hockey, John. (laughs) I think I do. (laughs) I know lots of cool tennis. Andre Agassi. I know about Jessica Pagula and Joker. He just won the Australian Open. Like I know, I know. Look stuff. at there you. I actually, if, if nothing else, I feel this podcast has broadened your tennis knowledge. <laughs> oh, for sure, it's definitely broadened mine. It went from zero to not zero. I know. Now you there want to cheer go. for Jessica Pagula, right? Now that you know that she's got a relation I mean, to the Bills. She's a billionaire, so maybe not. I did know that before. I just didn't realize how good she was. A billionaire can be good at hockey or hockey. Okay. She's <laughs> not- <laughs> billionaire can be good at hockey too. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of billionaires are probably good at hockey. <laughs> Next topic. So I'm going to go towards a place that sometimes is danger on this show. And I'm going to talk about a show that you guys have maybe never watched, but HBO <laughs> has a new epic drama series, the last of us. And guys, it's great. It's, it's based amazing. on the 2013 video game, the last of us, and is a series set 20 years after a mass fungal infection caused by a mutation in the genus Cordyceps, sparks a global pandemic and our favorite zombies. (laughs) So this past weekend, the third episode premiered featuring a wonderful performance by Nick Offerman, which has the world crying, which surprised me as much as it surprised you, spoilers aside. And so friends, have we seen The Last of Us? Do we plan to? And why is HBO so good at the drama series? So my volleyball team was talking about this last night and I found out just yesterday that Nick Offerman was in this. It is on the list because I did just finish uh, streaming um, White Lotus. Very Ooh, loved it. I, I actually, I, I binged both seasons in one week 
Like I, it was, um, it, it was just great. But uh, we just finished season two. We finished. We watched season one when it came out of White Lotus, but we just finished season two. Uh, but I saw I, I saw um, um, advertisements for The Last of Us, and I was like, "Huh, this looks pretty cool." So I think that's definitely on the next um, next thing to to binge on, at least on HBO. So yeah, I, I'm I'm actually looking forward. forward well, the to concern it. I think that I had for it is intellectual property shows on or movies on video games normally suck. Yeah, I mean they're normally just bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so the idea of a show based on a video game about zombies. So already we're like four tropes in <laughs> for it. Yep. Se- seemed bad, but the first episode, I, and I guess I'm a little biased. I really like the walking dead and I really like dystopian drama. And so it's very good. And they did a thing in this last episode and the internet was ablaze by it. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So we're not going to talk about details, but Nick Offerman was so vulnerable and so emotionally charged and it was a beautiful episode about the end of the world. And I think HBO's ability to bring drama and emotion to um, television media, especially where we're just oversaturated by television shows, even though, and we've heard it here, I really love them, um, <laughs> is amazing, really, when you think about it. And so now we have this network. And even though Discovery is trying to ruin them, we have this network that's putting on show after show that's just top top quality they get now they get top actors they get top writers and they just keep making good stuff they are very good at it uh and everyone thought after game of thrones that no one would be watching hbo but surely that is not the case because we all they, they keep coming out with some great great content yeah 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 absolutely i know I, pete's watching what do you think pete it's amazing and uh it, it wasn't just i mean Nick Hofferman blew me. Like I, I've always liked him, but that performance blew me away. And it was dramatic just him. role, though. Yeah, yeah, Com- yeah. Very different for him, but also um, Murray Bartlett, um, the guy that plays Frank, who's pretty much it's pretty much the two of them for that entire episode, just holding this, holding the episode down. And they're it played like a like an Oscar movie. Like to me, I mean, okay, maybe not quite that, but like <laughs> it played like an Oscar movie. Yeah, it did. Like, no, it really did. Like for a TV show, like. I looked at Steph and I was like, this is so unique and so well done. Like it was powerful. Yeah. I think that is really HBO's magic. I haven't seen this one yet. It's like markets on my list, but I think they really, you know, they make, they conceive of shows in the same way that, that movie producers and movie directors are conceiving of Oscar quality movies. (laughs) Like they're really bringing that level of fire. So it sounds awesome. And I love Nick Offerman. So I'm all, I'm all in. Oh, yeah. You got to check it out. So uh, I listened to the um, most of HBO's major dramas. They do um, talk to the EPs and the directors afterwards to just get an idea of where their head was at. And they said an interesting thing Um, because of the time difference. And now what's cool about the show is they end the world in the aughts. And so it is already ended by present day. Okay. For a long time. Right. So 20 years, but 20 years from 2003 to 2023, right? What's cool about this episode, they said, if it's better there, and what they meant by there is if it's better in the past, we stay there. And so they use these two, these two men's relationship to kind of mark the passage of time from, from when everything went wrong to present day. And it was really, really beautiful and really believable. There was very little violence. Um, it was really just an hour and 20 minutes about a relationship. Definitely That's the awesome. strongest episode so far. And coincidentally, and they've been strong. 
they, they've all been really good this one deviated supposedly the most from the game i have yet to play it i really want to um they're remaking it i guess for like the new consoles and pc yeah coming in they march should. synergy yeah, it yep. they are but it's i guess it's it's not out till march i was hoping to be out sooner so i could play it kind of in line with watching well the they show. knew that bob and frank were together and they didn't tell the story in the game so they used that as an opportunity to sort of like i said um show the passage of time because i thought it was an interesting thread to pull at and i think yeah. that's really cool for producers to see a story that's already really flushed and to take some intellectual properties and some some artistic liberties with it just smartly though right yeah if the writing's good enough and and the performances then by all means expand on the lore that the game started with yeah i just want to i want to be in that room when they said okay we have this really serious dramatic role you know who i want for it nick offerman (laughs) they're like no (laughs) seriously guys it's gonna be great yeah and then Seriously. to convince him, I mean, the only thing Nick Offerman e about this role is the man was a survivalist. Yeah, because yeah. Nick Offerman could care less to keep acting. Like he yeah. is highly oh, yeah, successful yeah. in a number of other places in his life. So, yeah, that's an interesting point to try to talk him into it. And I'm sure to some level, you know, they he was the one that they wanted. So having to do that would have been interesting. I could see him making a list. Of, he's like, all right, well, here's what I'm going to need to do on camera for me to do this. Exactly. <laughs> you have the voice pretty, pretty I well. I need done. all awesome. the bacon. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Next topic. So Netflix has canceled the slew of shows recently. And last year, they canceled over 40 programs altogether, with the majority of them after one season. Because it's a digital platform, Netflix has data and metrics that normal TV does not possess, including completion rate and accurate viewership, as opposed to Nielsen ratings. So everyone, is Netflix making the right decision about canceling shows so quickly, or are they just kind of overreacting? I think that they have actuaries that look at their data and say, we should cancel this show. And I think there's more than just viewership. I mean, you can see there are Netflix shows that don't get put on the top that are brand new. Mm-hmm. There are shows that they bury, that they don't want to succeed. Yeah. I think they're very aggressive about teen casts. I don't think they want to deal with any drama. So if the cast is hard to get together, if there's anybody who doesn't work on it, they're just like, no, because we don't need it, right? And so if they kind of, you know, they pick their programming specifically based on what is a definite success, they can continue to charge $21 a month, right? Yeah, I think they're going to I think they're going to miss out, though, because I do think that I think so they have so much content on the platform and they know that a lot of their viewers are are binging things and have mm-hmm. a ton of options on a ton of other platforms. So I think and I'm I am this viewer like I get to things six months later or a year later than everyone else. And by and by that time, like I think they they are missing it because they are so quick to cancel those shows that they're like, well, you know, in the first however long amount of time that they're gathering data for it, it didn't take off the way that these other shows did. That doesn't mean that it isn't a successful show or it just means that there's a ton of competition out there. And like you said, they probably weren't surfacing it or giving it really enough time to actually grow. Like, and then you have this issue of like a lot of the shows that do get multiple seasons, it takes like a year or so to see second or third seasons for a lot of these shows. So mm-hmm. I think they could do a better job of fitting some of their, you know, quirkier, smaller shows in between some of those and marketing them better or just surfacing content better to be able to support the shows that they want to invest in versus just 
throwing everything against the wall and wiping everything away. I would also like to have more insight into their licensing agreements. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that some of those cancellations, like the Defenders one, right? All the Marvel shows, um, Disney Disney pulled back their licenses and they said, okay, this all belongs to us. Now you have to take it all off your platform. And I think that happens more than we think it does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Across platform, like in a ton of different ways. Yeah. But but still, Netflix seems to do a, like pull the trigger a hell of a lot faster than than others. I pulled this off of uh, Glamour.com. Uh, other platforms that ca- uh, the number of shows that ca- they canceled last year, uh, the highest one was believe it or not HBO Max with fourteen. But uh, meanwhile, oh, Netflix really? canceled forty. Yeah, more than double. Damn. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at a list right now. There are some really beautiful shows that got canceled. Like Sense Eight was great. Yep. Sense8 mm-hmm. was a really wonderful program and completely different from anything else that's on television and that got canceled. I am curious at why they're listing Ozark as a weird cancellation as Ozark seemed to be ended really, really cleanly. They pulled, you know, they tied that show up with a string. I loved Ozark. I watched every season of it. But yeah, you know, that just it ended. seemed done. And there's a lot of shows like that that seemed like they were done. Well, I, I th- I'm pretty sure that was supposed to be the last season of Ozark regardless, right? Yeah, I thought they announced that. That's what I thought, too. And so like shows like Umbrella Academy, which I think were very popular, but had some mixed reviews. Like everybody didn't like Umbrella Academy. I had mixed reviews on Umbrella Academy. (laughs) I dug that show. It was great. It seems like Netflix did actually try like they pulled the trigger on a couple of LGBTQ plus uh, series as well. One of them was. Uh, Dead End Paranormal Park. It was an animated series, but it, again, it didn't get a very long life because probably because of viewership. They had another series that that they just canceled. It was a big budget mystery sci-fi show called 1899, and it mm. got a good amount of viewership. But they found out that only a third of the audience was actually watching it all the way through completion. So that's probably a, the biggest metric they look at. It's like, yeah, not not just how many time somebody hit play but right like how many minutes streamed how far into each episode are they i mean going? i know we even have that metric for the podcast we have po- we, we have do. the metric of people who download yeah. but also people who finish and actually yep. specifically when they stop listening right and so i mean i think that's a really important metric because you can tell if your content doesn't have staying power and if your content doesn't have staying power at like you know let's just say stranger things for a really aggressive example at 50 million dollars a season yeah. maybe you don't keep making those yeah, I, I, they've got yeah. to find a better balance, though, between what they're spending and like looking through some of those data points, because I, I think part of their issue is that they are they are bringing on a ton of these shows to try to compete with platforms like HBO that, again, have that kind of like movie quality, you know, end result for their shows. And I I think they're missing a lot of the niches, like, again, to kind of take it back to a comparison on podcasting you know, what's been successful with podcasting is that there are a ton of these small, like cult communities around these various topics and these smaller niches. And Netflix could have that same thing around a lot of these shows that they are spending too much on initially and then bailing on way too quickly. If they spent less on some of these shows just to test them and gave them a little bit I'm going to give you guys a crazy Netflix recommendation right now, by the way, Jamie (laughs) and Mel are watching physical 100, which is a South Korean competition athletics show and it's whoa a hundred giant in shape south korean men and women pretty much doing american gladiator and it's amazing (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) it's so interesting and 
intense and Jamie's Jamie and Mel are just like into this sports show and I'm like what the hell is going on yeah you gotta give people time yeah I like it there's just so much out there that I don't know I think all the platforms need to do a better job of Netflix has probably the lockstep on foreign programming Mm -hmm. if you guys watched Mm -hmm. Money Heist Money Heist is the best Spanish Spanish language show I've ever seen right that show is great um Squid Game Squid Game, Squid Game. Game. so yeah. great. Of course. Squid. I'm not going to introduce the next topic. So the biggest YouTuber in the world, Mr. Beast, Jimmy Donaldson, released a video this week in which he said he was curing a thousand blind people. It was uploaded on January 28th and has already received 59 million views. So in the video, Donaldson pays for people to get sight restoring cataract surgery and then films the patient's reactions to seeing clearly again. So this was with help of uh, the ophthalmologist Jeff Levinson and a nonprofit organization named C International, who stated that half the blindness in the world, I'm not sure I believe that's that, but half the blindness in the world is with people who need a $3,500 10-minute surgery. And so, guys, the video is met with mixed responses on the internet. So is this a, a wondrous act of generosity, or is it exploitation? Or maybe it's both. That's a great point. Yeah, it's it's probably both. I I don't know. The premise behind it, it sounds like a a feel-good story because you're giving sight to these people for the very first time, but he's definitely making a a lot of money off of it too. I mean, that's his whole gimmick though. Like mm. that is what he has built his brand on is this idea of like very over the top making people excited and having these really strong emotions, right? Like he's known for giving away crazy amounts of money or cars or, you know, that, that is how he has become as big as he is right now is just being over the top and larger than life. Things no one would dream of. He figured out that no matter how much money he gives away in a given episode, he will get enough views to pay for it. It's insane. Well, there would have been a tipping point. I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about his kind of getting started foundational story but i imagine that the first few of them were certainly larger in scale than they are now but we you know but i'm sure he had to invest initially in it to draw attention and then it got to a point where it was just grandiose enough that people were tuning in and wanting to see it right it's like but so i just looked up stats so we could talk about them over the last 30 days mr beast has six million subscribers that's down 40 percent from his last 30 days and he has 1.17 billion views. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And I can so, only imagine what kind of sponsorship he has from that. So that's probably one thing that he, like, at, at a certain point, maybe he's not even the one fronting the money for, for all these things. Oh, anymore. he's, yeah, I know. He's not. <laughs> yeah. So he, um, on top of his YouTube empire now, right, he has a Shopify ad deal that he pushes all the time. Yep. And he has a ghost restaurant. So the idea of this, he gives restaurants ingredients and menus and they build. They, so Mr. Beast Burger, right? Yep. You can get Mr. Beast Burger, but only on DoorDash and Grubhub. Yep. But they're good too. It, they're not good in my area. I've tried they're a couple not. times oh, no. and I'm always disappointed. I'm like, yeah. why? Why mm. isn't it good? Yeah, I, I don't know. I have very, I think it sets a really bad I, I I have feelings about the kind of the giant YouTubers and he's just one of, of a few of them, but I think they make, I think they make it seem like anyone can do that and they don't reveal enough of the amount of work and money and time that goes into it. Like they, they started with a skill set that not everyone has. And now everyone that jumps into that space or starts opening a YouTube channel or even starts a podcast, assumes that they are going to have 
they're going to be able with time or effort or, you know, grit are going to be able to work their way up to millions of listeners, millions of viewers and millions of subscribers and millions of dollars. And I don't think that that's the reality. I think these people, you know, have a very specific plan and some of it is luck and some of it is timing and it is not everyone. It's, it's a similar sort of magic of celebrity and fame. So the frustration on the internet was kind of a mixed diversity and inclusivity frustration where there was, and the quote is, it's so extremely frustrating that it's up to one YouTube guy to decide to make contact when people are too poor to fix themselves. Right. And so there's all this money, but just in one place. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my approach or my angle to this was why is this an issue in the first place that this is a systemic political and like health insurance choice to keep these people blind and not cover this when, which could be spending way more taxpayer money dealing with the fallout of that instead of just, if it's, if it's that quick, if it's, if it's just cataract surgery, just do it. Why is this not covered? Yeah. Or do like a, protest or a yeah yeah i can see that like it's this isn't like like a botox injection this is people's vision this is a serious matter that requires an insane amount of money to deal with that problem when you could just fix it and i think that was the idea of the episode that was the reason he got involved with a not-for-profit i think he was trying to bring awareness and and, and that's the thing, right? In 2023, we don't have commercials anymore. We have ad space and we have eyes. And when you have a billion eyes a month, I think you have somewhat of a responsibility to bring big issues and not just give away islands and put people in imaginary squid game, mm-hmm. which is also things that Mr. Beast does. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. And for, ca- for capitalists that want everything privatized, guess what? Those people that can now see, they can see your ads. <laughs> Uh, I think I made a very Pete specific episode. I have another question he's going to really like. (laughs) And there we go. I I just feel, I don't know. He's, he's gamifying everything. And there's, I think there's something really dangerous about that when it, when it comes to nonprofit and social issues and health issues and a lot of these things that even if he's really well-intentioned, he's making it feel like a game show. And I think there's something just that, can be incredibly dangerous with that perspective. I agree, by the way. I think yeah. that mm-hmm. I think that it was, while well-intentioned, probably a little too real. Like, yeah. it's better that he's just making people play tag in a football stadium, right? Yeah. Which is also something he does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Does Kieran like Mr. Beast? Yeah, so my, my kids are big fans. Um, their favorite, the videos are awesome. Their so, favorite so actually is um, Mark, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his last name. I do it every time. Uh, Rober, Mark Rober, who's the former NASA um, engineer. And oh, yeah, has, yeah, yeah. I know him. He yeah. does like squirrel maze and a bunch of that. So that, that oh is Oh, my their, God. The squirrel maze videos <laughs> yeah. are so amazing. He is, oh, he is their a, go-to. Yes. But yeah, they definitely. But I mean, I think, it, again, what's, da- what's dangerous about it, and I I get where he's coming from. I Obviously, I'm, I make a living through, you know, through YouTube to some extent. So I, I understand it, but I think it, we are now raising a generation and future generations past it of people that think that they, you know, my kids will say to me all the time, like, I don't, I don't need to go. I don't need to go to university because I'm just going to, I'm going to make all my money on YouTube. I'm going to have a YouTube channel. And <laughs> oh, I mean, no. it's like, it's cute and funny cause they're eight and 11. It like, but you know, there are people who really see him and see other people like yes, him and think that I'm, I can do that. And they you know, and 
I, I just don't think, I think that there's a level in the same way. There's a level of responsibility for the amount of eyes that are on him. I think that there's an amount of responsibility for just being a little bit more honest about how he is pulling that off or how hard it is. They, you know, they all make it seem like it's so easy. Like all you need is a camera and you can, mm. like, and it's not, it's really not. And it like, and well, it takes he has a, a money lot of room time. now. Yeah. Yeah. Just a money like, room. He just swims in money. Yeah. You know, I think that's a really good point though. Um, there is a certain degree that this is just a very, a, a incredibly more visible version of what fame was yeah. when we were kids, yes. when yes. our parents were kids. Yes. And like, but it's way more accessible though. Like, and I, I don't mean, accessible fame. I don't exactly. mean accessible to like, easier to watch. Like I think we, we were able to watch, as we said at the beginning of this episode, like tons of movies and tons of television. Like I, I think, I think our, our kids and us now, everyone now is able to talk to and spend time with these people significantly more than we were ever able to do before. Like, you know, celebrities before were in TV shows or in movies or, you know, doing really short interviews on Oprah and whatever else but now, you know, we're in, we're in their homes, you know, we're spending hours with them, you know, they're answering our, our, our chats and our super chats and everything that we're sending back and forth to them. There's yeah. an, there's an it's accessibility to them that is much more intimate. Yeah. And I think it can be great and there's a ton of power and community and um, just amazingness to it, but it can also be really dangerous. And there's a lot of there's just, a, you know, a lot of misinformation out What's there. What's actually really it. interesting is you'd think he'd be worth more than this. I just looked it up. Mr. Beast's net worth in 2023 is only $105 million. And I mean, only $105 oh, million, right? It. That doesn't sound like a lot. But <laughs> the, way he, yeah. but the way he gives away Ferraris yes. Yes. and <clears throat> islands and just incredible amounts of money, like it's nothing. Yeah. It feels like he's worth more. So I think there's a little bit of a tightrope walk going on that he's doing. Yeah. Well, again, sure. I think oh, yeah. that has sure. more to do with you know self-worth versus what he has uh, the ability yeah. to give away because of mm -hmm. other people footing the bill yeah yeah exactly he's he's amazing at what he does he's formed amazing relationships and partnerships and sponsorship deals and he completely intimately understands how youtube works as a platform he understands you know search engine optimization he gets google he at this point he basically works for youtube like i mean the relationship <laughs> he has with them is is intimate is like he understands everything about that platform and they understand everything about what he's trying to accomplish it, that's a different playing field than 99.9 percent .9 of the population i don't know how far past that tipping point we are but i feel like there's a lot of people and i agree with you i feel like there's a lot of people who don't really understand how to make money on youtube no one understands how to make money it on doesn't YouTube. just really, come out yeah, yeah right it's, like yeah. It's how really do you hard. get those double ad youtube yeah. videos like yeah. how do you get the big ones right the mm -hmm. major sponsorship videos like how do you get stuff yeah. that makes you enough money to give away a ferrari on a 30 minute video 26 minute video yeah. well to go back to what katie said like it, it, people are just watching youtube videos like oh i can make a youtube video and it's like well why aren't i making a million dollars now because they they think it's that easy. Yeah. Every, every, um, customer and potential customer that I work with, you know, that's their second or third question, right? It's like, how do I, how do I start a podcast? <laughs> how do I start a show? How do I start a YouTube video? And then a couple of episodes in, it's like, how do I monetize this? You know, like I, all of my friends and in contacts that I know have, you know, these things and are monetizing it, but no one is really super honest with each other about what that actually means, you know, and even in dealing with sponsorships as a, as a business and, you know, the shows that we sponsor, 
no one is really great at, um, there's no data out there that's like really clear that's saying like, if you have this many, many listeners, you know, you should be getting right. this amount of money monthly. No one knows, right. it's all, people are, are all testing and pushing those boundaries and trying mm-hmm. to figure out what those relationships look like and who will work with them and who won't work with them and what they're willing to do and not willing to do. I, you know, it's it's still kind of a really changing field and, and no one is making a ton of money off of ads off any of these platforms. So it really is, it is those like, relationships or communities or like really building and growing an audience and then leveraging that into like a paid membership or giving, you know, or a Patreon or giving those, those fans and those viewers and those people who want to spend time with you, you know, extra time with you or extra experiences with you that they wouldn't get elsewhere. And they are willing to pay that. And in many ways, those monetized communities and memberships are in many ways, way more valuable and uh, lucrative to a lot of these different channels and, um, podcasts than a brand deal. Like brands by and large, don't know what to do with all the sponsors and, <laughs> and all these creators out there, they get inundated with all these requests. So yeah, I think it, you need to be able to think through the different sides of it, but there's just so much misinformation and, and because it's also visible, the biggest of the big players out there just make it a lot, you know, more confusing, I think for people that are getting started. Next topic. So the owner of the New York Knicks and New York Rangers, James Dolan, has been utilizing facial recognition software at Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall. Now, he's not using this as a safety protocol. Instead, he's using it to identify people who are suing him or are somehow involved in those lawsuits in one way or another. In fact, last December, Kelly Conlon, who was chaperoning a group of Girl Scouts that were seeing the Rockettes, was denied entry because she works at the firm that was suing Dolan at the time. It has been reported that this is a violation of his liquor license and the state has threatened to revoke the license. In response to this, Dolan threatened a self-imposed liquor ban at his facilities, but he later took that back. So everyone, mainly John, what the hell is wrong with James Dolan? (laughs) I mean, he's a narcissistic billionaire. I think everything that's wrong with him is wrong with every narcissistic billionaire. I don't really, I'm not really a James Dolan fan, so you're not really going to get me fired up on that. I don't think he's a very nice man. I'm, I don't really think MSG is run terribly well. My niece worked kind of greeter at MSG for a little while after college. And I mean, it wasn't a great job. She wasn't really treated very well. Should facial recognition be used unethically? Of course not. Never. I mean, it's so crazy that he thinks he's allowed to do that. And, and unfortunately, when you think about it, there's facial recognition everywhere. We are pur- oh, yeah. we are purposefully giving our faces to to Apple. And most of the time when you have like a little fun game on YouTube or a little fun game on Facebook, it says, Hey, you know, take let me take a picture oh, of you absolutely. and I'll, I'll make you look like mm-hmm. an elf. It's just some Asian company or some Russian company data mining you. Getting a picture yeah. of your face, not even needing it right now, but just so they have it. Um, there was the Lenza thing that happened mm-hmm. maybe a month ago. Oh, yeah. Everybody took their picture. Everybody gave rights to Lenza. There was, if you looked at the fine print, the EULA for that Lenza license, that was terrifying. Hmm. And so I looked it up. It's a Russian company. And so hmm. I think people need to understand, and, and this is coming from an IT professional, people need to understand that the internet is not your friend. It's not your friend. Of course not. No one on it wants to be nice to you. 
Everyone wants something from you, but because, and, and that's the misnomer for the old, for the uninformed, the misnomer is, well, my computer wouldn't lie to me. It's mine. My phone wouldn't lie to me. It's it's mine, right? It's a thing that I have, that I own, that I control. And it's really not. It's really not. Not anymore. Right. It's great, Pete. Not anymore. <laughs> so I, I will say it, it was very disappointing, the fact that he's using this advanced technology for something so petty. I will say this. I am looking forward to facial recognition being used at airports. Hell because, yeah. Because uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I got that. Uh, so going back to my my London trip, that was one thing that was amazing that I could essentially walk through this machine and it no, it could see who I am. And that's essentially going through customs a, mm -hmm. in London. It was so fast. Yeah. I'm going to bring up a science fiction scenario for you. Okay. Let's just say, and Ooh, really Nets. actually right now, <laughs> facial recognition, not that advanced anymore. No. But in the science fiction scenario where the federal government can find you wherever you are, whatever you're doing and act on that. Like, you know, what was that Tom Cruise movie where uh, minority report, minority they can report. minority report you at mm. any time. And you are wrongfully accused of something and you get arrested literally for walking down the street. I mm -hmm. mean, how, what is the ethical implications of the use of advanced technology and advanced monitoring at a federal level, like at an airport level, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole problem with technology, right? Like the intent of, of it first coming out is one thing and then it gets totally used for something else, usually for something bad. So how do you control that? Well, I don't think we can answer that in this podcast, but it's bound to happen, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that there's a really fine line between something that is incredibly helpful and simplifies processes and, and you know, makes things more possible for people and takes away rights and can be used against us all. So uh, yeah, I don't know. All these technologies have the potential to be incredible or incredibly dangerous. And it's it's hard to kind of navigate, I think, these days on, you know, how much should how much should you do? How much should you not do? How crazy should you be about it on either side? If you asked Oppenheimer in the forties about his technology project, like what would he say, right? What would he exactly. say before he got involved with the government and he just realized that tons of energy was produced when you split an atom? Yep. I don't know. Yeah. He would probably warn us. Technology has always been dangerous. And yep. the, the misnomer, I guess, of today's technology is the micro scale of it and the fact that it's not outwardly dangerous. Yeah. And right, let's just like really ramp up the science fiction again. If we take that facial recognition technology and we say that it can find criminals and now we have unmanned drones using AI yep. taking out criminals, right? Yeah. And what if it gets it wrong? Yeah. Right. I mean, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the really scary part. The really yeah. scary part is if you, right, you said it when we started, if you take it to a Skynet level and you give up control of the defense system, all of a sudden, the computers, and I sound crazy right now, but I really like technology a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, all like of it. a sudden, the computers have full control of whether or not we deserve to live. Yeah. Well, let's hope it never gets to that. Yeah, exactly. I'm always, I reach a point in these conversations where I'm just like, no, nope, no, 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 no. Next topic. So guys, we can't seem to get away from Britney Spears drama anymore. She returned to Instagram on Sunday night after a dramatic week in which she called out some fans who asked the police to do a welfare check on her. She deleted her account last week and said she felt bullied for people calling her impulsive behavior and posts out as weird or dangerous or kind of 
hey, she might have problems. Uh, so she let her the officers know that she was fine and on returning to social media reminded her fans that they don't know her story and she's learning how to exist after having no rules for 15 years. And so my question, after being free from her 15-year-long conservatorship on November 12th of last year, is Britney really okay? Is any child actor really no. okay or child <laughs> yeah, star really okay? It's a loaded question. Oh. I mean... Compared to, I think, where she was before the conservatorship, I'd say she's okay because uh, she doesn't seem to like want to really harm herself or her kids. Or, uh, but you know, what do I know? Because I don't really see her every every single day. I mean, she's right. The fact that we don't know her, however, as we've kind of said on this episode already, she puts herself out in the public eye and social yes. media. So yeah. we feel like we know. We her. feel like we know her. Yeah. <laughs> and if I saw anyone I was related to acting like Britney Spears is on Instagram right now, I would also call the police. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like she does. She's definitely showing some erratic behavior. But, you know, did she really say that she's she's had no rules for 15 years? Maybe, maybe uh, she meant having no rules now. Oh, having misspoke. no rules now. OK, yeah. Because yeah. she had nothing but rules. Yeah. With, I was, was going to say that, that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They let the dogs loose and, and whatnot. So this is what ha yeah, this is exactly what happens when you've been. Look what happened with the pandemic. Right. We couldn't leave our house for two, three years. And now we want to do nothing but leave the house. Right. So. Yeah. It's it's not just her when you're when you have all of these restraints on you and then there's you're they're suddenly not there anymore. You definitely run wild. Sure. I mean, there I, is I, a question, though, about that, where we have to think about the actual mental illness that she could be struggling from. And is she medicating? Because some people are sick from schizophrenia. Some people are sick from bipolar disorder. And they need meds and they need to be controlled. And I'm not saying she needs to be put back under lock and key because obviously she was being treated unfairly. But there is kind of an intermediate point where her example is so far off the scale yeah. because she was rich and yeah. because she got taken advantage of. But mm -hmm. it doesn't make her not have mental illness. Right. What is, what is the obligation, though, I think, is is the question. Like, it's such an interesting topic. And she's not she's you're right. And that she's. She's not the only celebrity that has been through through this, but certainly the most extreme version of it, at least that I can think of. Um, but yeah, there's sort of this like obligation where you have these fans who care about her and feel as though they they are you know friends with her or have have whatever level of relationship with her. But are those are those people that really the ones who should be? you know, commenting or calling the police or, or are they the ones that should be helping her versus her actual friends and family and, you know, and the people who probably get a bigger or stronger say it's a weird place to be in where she's stuck in this public eye and everyone has this varying levels of visibility into her, but no one really knows what's going on. And at one point, at what point is it like busybodyness and people poking, poking the noses where it doesn't belong to try to help her versus actually giving her the help that she needs. I have a question in response to that. Is there really a difference between her fans calling the police because of her erratic behavior in social media and the free Britney movement? Because mm. the free Britney movement was a social media movement that yeah. all her fans did. Yeah. And it had a great outcome because she got out of the conservatorship. Yeah. But is that really any different than then uh, fans calling in the, the the cops on her. Well, it's it's two sides of the same coin, right? It's like she needed right. all of those fans to be able to help her get out of this really difficult situation. But now they feel high level of investment in her 
but it's on mm-hmm. the other side that she doesn't really want. And so, yeah, what is the, yeah, I don't know what, what, and her behavior right now is so atypical of her illness, right? Yeah. You know, bipolar with psychotic issues. Yeah. I mean, when you tell someone who has mental illness that they seem like they're maybe not okay. I mean, mental illness is a really funny thing, right? Cause it's all about perspective. And when you're in your own brain and your actions seem justified and relevant, then you're saying, well, my actions are justified and relevant and I am Britney Spears and you shouldn't tell me what to do. Yeah. Should we do the same thing with all these other people doing stupid stuff on yeah, social that, media that's though? It. Like, like, right. yeah, yeah. Like who are we as the, I, again, it just comes down to, I think you're right, Mark. It's this love. It's, it is her fans because they feel so invested and because they, you know, they feel a part of her story. It's almost, and this is like a weird, a weird example, but, um, and the Veronica Mars movie is the one that comes to mind. Cause I'm a diehard fan of it. But th- this concept of like, if you, if you crowdsource something and you, you know, you as a diehard fan bring back a show or, or, you know, fund a project or whatever, do you get, the entire say of what that project is and what is the obligation of the people that are actually the actors and the directors and the creators of that project to give you what you want because you help support it. Does Brittany owe us an explanation of, of what is her level of mental health or answers to how she is acting because she's in the public eye and we saved her from her conservatorship. I, I don't know if she does. I think she can probably act as crazy as she wants. And I guess the reason I brought it up is, um, it is a level of an exploitation question. I mean, if my niece, let's say, or, or, or Mark's niece or anyone we know and love was acting that way, dancing mostly naked on the internet, mm-hmm. would we say something? I certainly would. Oh, absolutely. But you yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, right. That, that's someone that we know. Right. Yeah. And but who does Britney Spears have now that we have literally legally separated her from the family that we know of? And no one's telling her to stop in her social circles. Her, she doesn't have a social media manager that tells her, hey, that post on Instagram, that makes you look crazy. She has a, a, a other people in the entourage, though. I mean, you'd think someone would try to be the voice of reason. Although, right. yeah. well, you know, I mean, there's probably is- an obligation of the platform to take some stuff down at some point. I, I just, yeah, yeah, for sure. I yeah. think it's a, I think it's a different line when you, when you actually know someone or it's someone that you're related to what you're allowed to say or what you should say is really different than someone that you're kind of, you're just watching, even though you feel like you're really good friends with them or that you, you know them really well, you know their story all the way through. Like in, until she's actually hurting herself or hurting someone else or damaging public property or doing something that is, that the police can respond to. I mean, it's the same thing. Like I've had friends in the past who have suffered from cocaine addictions there's very little that you can do to help people. You can't force people to get clean. You can do some things to get clean, but in the end, like it's up to them or, you know, or it's, it comes down to, I guess, yeah, levels of control. I don't know. There's, it feels like there's, even though it is absolutely horrible and I totally agree with you on the exploitation side of it. I, I, I don't know like whose responsibility it is to tell her that she can't do those things if she's not, hurting anyone and it's not going against any kind of terms or services of whatever platform she's posting on. She can kind of do what she wants to do as long as like, I, you know, it's awful to watch her kind of implode publicly, but I don't know if there's really anything we can do about it. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, 
she's like a freed prisoner essentially at this point it's it's yeah. going to take her a long time to adjust to a normal world where you know she's got to be responsible for a lot of her own actions now and that's something that she's not used to yet yep on top of that right all of the the struggles of a, like you said yeah. what child superstar that was brought up that way is you know ever led a normal life yeah so she's she's got a long way to go i think and I'm, I'm sure she knows that, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't think this is the last time there's going to be some kind of no. issue and, but hopefully right. None of them get more serious than this. I mean, unfortunately, when you see someone in Hollywood that is this mentally ill, it's generally ending with their death. Yeah. And is, is she though? Like, like she how, is, so- she is actually mentally ill. She has been committed in hospital before she should be on meds i don't know if she is it doesn't seem okay. like she is since she's been free of her conservatorship like... though has she gone to a doctor of her own volition her yeah. own choice and have they read like have they confirmed that diagnosis or was I mean, this I don't all know. was this i'm all not a britney spears family? fan and i okay. don't really care all that much but <laughs> what i well, you know <laughs> what i am really interested in is the evolution of mental health in the country I think I am very concerned about the fact that this could just happen. And just as a human, like her implosion seems dangerous and Mm -hmm. she's not. And this is the problem that we get into. Let's just like hypothetical situations. This is what I like this episode, I guess. Um, In a hypothetical situation where you see someone who you care about acting like this, are you concerned about them because they're embarrassing themselves or are you concerned about them because you think they might hurt themselves or the actions that they're doing are dangerous? Right. And I think it's the the latter, not the former. Right. Because I think there's trouble with mental health because people are like, well, that's not my business. And I think this is a bit of and, and Britney Spears being a famous person being in the public eye. I think this is just like a really big spotlight on that question. It's, I don't know if it's so much not, like not your business as much as it, this is a person who has spent their their entire life being told aggressively what to do and completely out yeah. of control of their own decisions. And so it even if she is suffering from mental health issues or, you know, or hasn't yet figured out like what she should be doing. And even if she's on a horrible downward spiral, those are still her decisions to make. Like, it, it's just I. I I feel like it's worrisome to get as much as we want to help people. It's also worrisome to take away their ability to make their own decisions and, you know, sort of force them into a box or force them into getting help. I, you know, there's, I think a fine line between. I really like the forced dichotomy of this conversation. Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I, it's, it is really difficult. I, I feel like often in these kinds of situations, there's just, it's, it's a helplessness of the people sitting watching it in that you want to be able to help, but it's difficult to know the best ways to help that don't take away someone's autonomy and don't make them feel less than. And, you know, and, and you're doing it for the right reasons. Like you said, you're not, you know, you're not just doing it because they're embarrassing or difficult to deal with or whatever else like it. Yeah. I don't know. You don't actually know. No, as non-fans, there's a lot we don't as know. people that aren't in her family, we don't actually know, but there's a lot of but people we, that think that they know. Yeah. That's it. The problem is, is that know. they think they know. Yeah that most of her reels in the last six months are mostly unclothed, makeup a mess, hair a mess, in the shower, just like really odd. You don't do that too? No, I don't. But she right? could, like, she could be, I, there's a ton of things, like she could be, 
She could be doing could, that for attention. She could like, I, you know, I don't know. There's a ton of. Well, different. that's definitely a, that's definitely a child star thing. They, yeah, they're like, so used to <laughs> like, attention yeah, yeah, yeah. all she was, of the time. Yeah. Right. I, I, just to break down, I was going to do this, but we ran out of time. She was 26 when she was put in her conservatorship, and she was famous when she was 16. Yeah. So. Oh, even before that. Well, she got if signed she, with she, Jive at 97, and she is our age. Well, she was part of the Mickey Mouse Club too, though. So oh, she, that's right. Yeah. So she's been, quote unquote, fame. I mean, she wasn't yeah. huge until she uh, hit me, baby, one more time happened. But sure, mm. but that's still like right. She's always been in show business her yeah. entire life. Well, um, I think I think the more in the more specific point is that the relationship she has with her father probably existed when she started to become famous. Yeah. And the trauma that's the trauma that we just don't know about, right? Yeah. And that's why it's a mental health question. Oh, the trauma yeah. that we don't know about is in there in oh, those yeah, years sure. where he's being abusive and driving her and telling her she doesn't have worth unless she's famous, right? right. And all that stuff probably happened. Yeah. Oh, nobody yeah. can can weather all that and come out you know, tip top. Yeah. But then, right, there's the question again. Does it does it make sense to let her have her autonomy and crash and burn or not? Yeah. Well, yeah I mean, yeah. that's her God-given right as a U.S. citizen. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are a lot I mean, of other I, people I, who do, I do the same. I do think so. Instagram should in, take that uh, stuff down. That's such a mental health question, though, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, we can't just say the crazy have to die. We can't. No, but we can't insane people. Next topic. And now for a segment that we're going to call Show Me Your Balls. Now, we've dabbled on hey this. there. We, we've dabbled a little bit on this, uh, on what we're going to talk about in previous episodes and even mentioned a lot of these people earlier in this podcast. So I'm going to list 10 Hollywood couples, and I'd like you to rank your top five as best you can. If you need to write these names down, you can do so at your leisure, but you don't necessarily have to. Gosh. Um, so again, I'm going to list off 10 Hollywood couples and I want to rank the, uh, I want you to rank the top, top five. For and like if there's successful someone, couples? Like what are we ranking them for? Your favorite. Your, oh, our favorite. Your favorite. Okay. Right, okay. Um, and if I don't list uh, any, uh, any of your actual favorite couples, then you can do a write-in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So first couple, Beyonce and Jay-Z. Second couple, and these are in no uh, or particular order. Second couple, second couple is Blake Lively and Ryan Reynolds. Number three, Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. Number four, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend. Number five, previously mentioned Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard. Number six, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Number seven, Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher. Number eight, previously mentioned Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. Number nine, Jessica Biel and Justin Timberlake. And number 10, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prince Jr. So, anyone want to give me their top five? Well, I'm going to just start, and I know Katie agrees with me. Um, <laughs> Dax and Belle are my favorite couple in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Top by far. So cute. So cute. So emotionally like relevant and stable and they go to therapy together yeah. and they talk about their problems. Um, it's interesting if you listen to armchair um, armchair expert, which is, is uh, Dax Shepard's very popular podcast. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you listen to Armchair, he talks about how different they are all the time. Yeah. And it's cool that he like he as an internal person who doesn't ask for help, who is very emotionally stunted of his own admission, has this very emotionally available. Let's go to therapy. Let's talk about our problems, wife. And I think it really makes them work. I think they are willing to work. And and the thing about it is like couples in Hollywood, they don't stay together, right? Because their jobs are just so weird and taxing and they're never together. And they're, you know, they're always busy or rich or fighting about whose job is more important, right? Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prince Jr. Oh, who are still, yeah. who are also wonderful and still together. And you know how they stayed together? They stopped being famous. They stopped while being they famous, were, yeah. They just stopped being famous. They were like, well, we have enough money and everything's fine. I think Freddie Prince literally just did his first project after ten years, yeah. and Sarah well, he did, a, he did a lot of behind the camera stuff. Like he was, he, did. he was they actually writing like, for WWE for a while. Yeah. While Mila and um, Ashton's relationship started a little weird, I think that they're a really cute couple. I think again, they're willing to be in the public eye together. Same with Blake and Ryan. I think that they're willing to be vulnerable together and talk about their problems. Really, talk about how many kids Blake Lively has and how much Ryan Reynolds adores her for making babies. Like he's so <laughs> everything, present. Everything they put out about each other on social media is just hilarious too. Hilarious. <laughs> it's really nice that he's like finally found his person because I feel like he had a couple of very public like yes, celebrity yes. relationships prior, and it was it was just like never clearly like never the right fit for him because he mm -hmm. himself is so funny and interesting and like mm -hmm. and just fun to kind of publicly watch. And so it's not, I know very little about Blake Lively, and like I don't even I I don't really know a lot about her, but it's really fun to kind of watch how well they seem to play off of each other and like how silly they are with each other. And it's just nice to see that he's happy. Really? Well, imagine being married to the most sarcastic man in Hollywood, right? Yeah. Like, right. Like she seems to, to hold it down. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you think, Katie? I, 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 you name, you hit all mine. Um, I will add to the list, uh, Nick Offerman, uh, who I just love and, and mm -hmm. Megan are just adorable and amazing because again, they are just, very much themselves and comfortable yeah. with being themselves. Have you, seen, have you seen their craft show that they do together? I have seen their craft show that they do together. I love that they just <laughs> like seem to, again, similar to, to Dax and Kristen, they just seem to like accept each other for who they are, are mm -hmm. fine being by themselves, but are better together. And I, I just really like that about them. I love Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Cause again, they've just, they're just like one of those, long lasting incredibly so long they've been nice. together so long yeah yeah like just like so like nice and supportive of each other and and you know unlike um unlike Freddie Prince Jr and and Sarah Michelle Gellar <laughs> they they have you know managed to stay in the public eye and managed to have very successful careers mm -hmm. and still, you know, and still just be really stable and kind, which is so hard in Hollywood. So I'll make a point, Mark. Um, I think of all the really, really wonderful relationships you listed. I don't think Jay and uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce deserve to be on that list. I don't yeah, think they're they feel kind that of, good. Yeah. They feel kind yeah, of off. I don't they're know. They're not in my top five. Yeah. No. I second though. Uh, Ryan and Blake is number one. Yeah. I, I love them. Well, Dax and Kristen is number one, man. You got it wrong. <laughs> I do have them up there. Um, I what, forgot about else? Tom and Rita Wilson. I, I forgot how long they've been together. Oh, um, forever, yeah. I, I guess you'd call this an honorable mention. Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Hillary Burton. 
They're they're oh. less known, right? They're lower profile, right? They're yeah. not like A-list Hollywood celebrities, but they're still a good couple. I mean, it's pretty they're, famous. They own a candy shop in New York <laughs> where she puts weird paintings of cows on the walls. Oh, we were there. I love it. Is that the one that the three famous guys own? Yeah, actually, yeah, right. There's somebody else that owns it with them. Uh, I actually just at the last minute replaced Jessica Biel uh, and Justin Timberlake. Cause, I'm sorry, I, I had... I they were the ones I replaced it with, but before I had and John, if your wife was on this podcast, I'm pretty sure she would list them as number one. Hmm. Would be Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. Oh, no, she'd, they, she'd yeah. get the right. She'd get the right answer too. She would say Dax and Kristen. Well, no, I, I think no. I, I, I think you're right. she would list, say that, yeah. but she like would be on the list. Too. She would. Yeah. She, they would definitely be on the list. But gotcha. I replaced at the last second with Jessica Biel and Justin Timberlake. Oh, Paul Rudd owns this candy That's shop. That's what I think. Yes, Steph and I went there randomly. We were in. We were driving home from some other trip, like a road trip, and we're like, hey, we're in that town with that candy shop. So we went there and it was really cool. <laughs> I love that. Jesus, I love Paul Rudd. Where's yeah, Paul oh, Rudd yeah. Paul Where Rudd is that town? Be. We got to give a shout out to this candy shop. It's not in Rhinebeck. Sp- not a sponsor. Sa- Samuel's <laughs> yeah, Sweet Shop, not a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul, if you're listening, we love you and are very excited for Quantum Mania yes. next and week. And if, if you want to yes. come on the podcast, please reach out yes. to us. <laughs> Jeffrey B. Morgan, too. We are an equal opportunity podcast. (laughs) So I agree, Kristen and Dax are up there, but they are not my number one. Number one by far, you're wrong. I actually think, I actually rank, (laughs) I rank Ryan Reynolds and Blank Lively actually even ahead of Kristen and Dax. Again, because I, so the the one that she most recently did, Blake Lively, she, she tweeted that she just got an ESPN Plus subscription yeah, so she could watch she could watch the Wrexham game and watch her husband be so stressed out live yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the main reason she would do it too that's, yep. that's really funny because like, it's hilarious when you're stressed dude but my number one is Emily Blunt and John Krasinski I think mm. they are by far the cutest and the fact that like I don't know I just I love everything that both of them do yeah yes right. they're a good one too they took a, a while ones. to grow on me I've like always loved him but I feel like she was a little like it it took a while for me to realize how funny and awesome she is because mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of the roles that she was playing early on, she, oh, yeah. she was She's like, stuck up in she was, yeah, on. totally like the stuck up obnoxious. You were like, Oh God, Devil I hate Prada, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm, I should be better than to not assume that all actors are actually <laughs> like their characters, but yeah, it took me, he's just so like always been so incredibly likable that for a while I was just like, really? That, but yeah, she's, she's great. And they have become quite an awesome couple. So I'm just going to do a B-list honorable mention. Glenn McElhenney and Caitlin Olsen. Oh, another Literally hilarious yeah. and wonderful together. Yeah. Um, Caitlin Olsen, by the way, friends with Dax Shepard. Yep. <laughs> and uh, Charlie Day and Mary Elizabeth Ellis. These oh, are all yep. members of the Always Sunny class. I was going to uh, say, cast. did you just look up Sunny's yep. um, yeah. cast no, list? No, <laughs> I, I knew that Charlie Day was married to the waitress. And I knew uh, that... Um, spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, <laughs> in real life. In real life. No, I know in real life. I know. <laughs> yeah. I told that, that to Pete and Steph when they were rewatching Always Sunny for the first time. They yeah, were like, what? That blew my mind Amazing. when I first learned that. That's pretty cool. Final topic, fight. All right, so Pete, I wrote this question for you. Um, ExxonMobil posted at a $56 billion net profit for 2022. The company said on Tuesday, taking home, get this, $6.3 million per hour last year. This not only set a company record, but a historic high for the Western oil industry. The scale has renewed criticism of the oil industry and sparked calls for more countries to levy windfall profit taxes. With the continued rise of gas prices, how can the world fix an economy that unfortunately is still reliant on oil and oil companies? 
and you wonder why I just bought an electric vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I think you already said the answer in your your intro there is windfall profits tax. I mean, yeah, I'm sure the pure capitalist doesn't like that, but the problem is like any economic or political philosophy, something that can run for too long unchecked will eventually get corrupted and, and get out of hand. I mean, it's it's the same way on the far other direction. Like we've seen the worst of communism, you know, in, in, in history, I think we're seeing the worst of capitalism and it's happened before, right? The Gilded Age, the late 19th century, we're in that era again, where the, the reason like trust busting and monopoly busting and a lot of these rules and, and labor unions came up was to counteract a lot of these things and keep things in check. So, right. It's, it's a balancing act, right? You don't want to take away a company's incentive to generate profit and, and to be successful. But at the same time, enough is enough. Like it's, it's stifling the average person and they can't afford gas in the freaking car, not because it's harder to produce or more expensive, but so that a couple billionaire CEOs can get stock buybacks and more money. Come on. Well, I mean, that was the real insane part about this fact for me is that in a year where gas prices just went up exponentially and, and in an idea that maybe it was supply chain, maybe the oil, the oil pipelines were getting hacked. I mean, there nope. maybe there was a problem, but no, they're just raising prices. Yeah. And they made so much money last year. And now the scary part about this is this is a year where there has never been more electric cars. There's never been more electric power being generated. There's never been more green energy being made. I mean, the green energy industry made over a billion dollars last year. So what is happening where we can't push off this end of the world climate disaster? That is the oil economy. Follow the money. Nice. Yeah, they're they're, they're going to want to get their their piece of the pie as as and they I mean they know it's this is a fixed resource right mm-hmm. so eventually it is going to dry up so they're going to want to try and get as much money as they possibly can absolutely but, but Peter's absolutely right I mean this is one of the, the problems with capitalism and and a lot of the things that they've they did for the checks and balances like Pete mentioned the unions and don't forget the government but guess what now they're all kind of in each other's pockets and it's just making it even worse it's it, this is definitely not the peak of capitalism like it's only going to get the divide is just going to get become worse and worse so that's what we're in for so what's yeah. interesting about this question is that I've known Pete for almost 25 years, more than 25 years now. And um, Pete and I have just been arguing and arguing pleasantly about I think in a me, civil be- way. Yeah. me <laughs> being a capitalist. And I am a capitalist straight up. My, my dad was a member of big business in the 90s. He was a 9X executive. I've always, I have always believed in the ability to work hard and make money, right? And to make more money than someone that isn't working hard, right? And Yes, that I, concept is great. Uh, yes, the concept is great. In but the concept, concept, concept yeah. that's, that's in, not what's in theory. Actually, in right, theory. That, that's not what's actually happening but is the problem. And more and more, and when you look at it and you look at and, and this result is right, a big shining red light on it. When you look at this result in a year where the governments are subsidizing green energy to a point where, you know, you can get five thousand dollars off an electric car, right, Mark? Yes. You know? And so how in this climate, in this economic world, in this political world where we're trying to save the world, honestly, I work for a company that's trying to save the world. Did the oil, Western oil companies yeah. now, and we're not even talking about Russian oil, did the Western oil companies make more money than they've ever made before. Yeah. How did this happen? By, by large 
large functional percentages. It's and it's probably going to happen again th- at the yeah. end of this year. It's it's the last throws of of dinosaurs. Basically, yeah. it's like they're literally. It's 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 a bunch of short sighted people that are getting old themselves, are facing with their own mortality, and just want to grab as much of the pie and stuff it down their faces until they can't anymore. Beautifully put. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I get when I get articles from Reuters. <laughs> Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. So that has been our 10 topics. Please follow or like us on our socials at If These Balls Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our website is www.iftheseballscouldtalkpod.com where you can see our sports news of the day. You can talk to us through Discord. And we have some new features, including our new online shop where you can purchase some show swag and AI story hour with ChatGPT where ChatGPT creates a short story. We would like to thank our guests for joining us this week. Thank you, Katie. Thanks. It's been fun. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Sure. Yeah. So um, I have two podcasts so you can join me if you want to learn about podcasting and video podcasting on Tuesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. Our show is called The Flow. You can find us youtube.com slash ecam network. Uh, and if you want to hang out and talk movies with us, uh, my best friend Nat and I have a movie review podcast where we review 90s movies every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. We are the VHS Club you um, do youtube.com slash the VHS club. You will find us. I just want to say that so if cool. you thought listening to Katie talk was interesting, listening to Katie and not talk together is <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> and everyone should be listening to them talk about things. It doesn't even matter what it is. Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. We may have to extend out into uh, late eighties movies and early two thousands movies, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, once you get through your fun. favorite yeah. 150 movies, right. like you guys like that many movies and exactly. know all the words to them. There's exactly. a large pool of them though. It's true. That's true. Thanks again for everyone for listening. This is Mark Pesci and for my partner, John Campania and producer Pete Stefan. That's what we feel they would say if these balls could talk. If these balls-